Unknown in France. What about Very good plates. Monsieur Le Beast gave me a book the other night. He's always doing that. Sending books to a good home. That's what he calls it. He's got real... purpose. What do you mean? Everything has a purpose. Even machines. Clocks tell the time and trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. Like Monsieur Le Beast. Maybe that's why broken machines make me so sad. They can't do what they're meant to do. Maybe it's the same with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. Like Papa George. Maybe we can fix him. Is that your purpose? Fixing things? I don't know. It's what my father did. I wonder what my purpose is. I don't know. Maybe if I had known my parents, I would know. Come with me. Right after my father died, I'd come up here a lot. I'd imagine the whole world was one big machine. Machines never come with any extra parts, you know. They always come with the exact amount they need. So I figured if the entire world was one big machine, I couldn't be an extra part. I had to be here for some reason. And that means you have to be here for some reason too. Okay. That is a great movie, Hugo Cabret, um, and a great book if you have not seen it yet. If you like steampunk, as you can tell, it gets plenty of that as well too. I'm big into steampunk, as well as kids' movies and shows, which is why I've been into Stranger Things. Anybody watch that, Stranger Things? Yeah, it reminds me of Goonies. Anybody remember Goonies? <laughs> no? <laughs> Hugo says that it makes him sad um, when people lose their sense of purpose because it's like they're broken. It's like a machine that isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It's not functioning properly. How many of you have had great dreams? You've dreamt of doing great things. I have. When I was young, I had a very big dream. It was a dream of making a difference in the world. It was a dream of doing great things, facing great odds, being on a great adventure, overcoming great challenges, and experiencing great victories that would actually matter to the city and to society and to the community at large. It would promote human flourishing. I visualized living out this dream. I could see it in my mind. I would daydream about it, and I would pray to God. I would ask Him desperately and earnestly, dear God, please, please, please turn me into a ninja turtle. 
That was seriously my dream. And I wasn't six or seven. I was 12 years old. So other little boys were thinking about girls at the time now because, you know, the puberty and all that stuff. Puberty hit me in a different way. (laughs) I wanted to be a ninja turtle. I wasn't thinking about girls or, like, being on a basketball team. And I realized why I had that dream, and it was so, it was serious for me. I really, really prayed (laughs) really hard that God would turn me into a ninja turtle. And to my disappointment, I'm still an Asian boy. And I realized the reason why that dream was so important to me was because I wanted to do something significant, something great. I wanted to do something that mattered um, to the world and to society, to the community. And I think that's at the heart and the key of all of our lives is that we want to do something significant. We want to be great. We want to know that our work is established and it matters. We want to know that there's some meaningfulness for the days of our lives and all our efforts that we invest into, whether it be into our careers or into our families or into our marriages. I think the the great cry of the millennial age is that people dream of doing great things, which is why these shows like of Uh, World of Dance, and uh, So You Think You Can Dance, and all these other, The Voice, are so popular because you find these young kids that are just becoming stars, and they're doing great things. And I thought, boy, when I was a kid, we didn't have things like that where we could be movie stars, and people can make videos and become famous on YouTube and have a huge following. The cry of the millennial age is to do great things. And we've all heard before that if you develop your skills, discipline yourself, and hone in your knowledge, you can do in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And as you join me there in your Bibles, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we pray, Lord God, that your word would speak to us, that you open our minds, Lord, so we might be enlightened to the truths of your word. We pray, Father God, that not only will we dig deep into your word, but your word will dig deep into us. We pray, Father God, that your word will will do a, a kind of spiritual surgery upon us, Lord, to make us see and realize things about ourselves that we hadn't seen before that only your word and your truth can illuminate. And we ask, Father God, that you would be with us as our counselor, that you send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to educate us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul writes, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who, knows, na- who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Verse 20, now in the great house there were not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the on the Lord from a pure heart. See, Paul uses an imagery here. He talks about how in the great house, which back then would have been something like a mansion, that there are two different types of tools and instruments in this house that serve two different types of purposes. There are some that are for honorable uses and some for dishonorable. The honorable uses are made of a certain type of material. And the word honorable there in the original Greek literally can be translated as something that's respectable, distinguished, esteemed, valued, noble, or highly regarded. 
important. These were things where were tasks and functions where were of a, of a kind of a respectable sort. And these tools that were meant to be used for such things were made of silver and gold. And I brought from my house here a, a tool of mine that is um, not made of silver and gold, but it is something that's expensive and, and fine for me <laughs> is this serving spoon. Now, with this serving spoon, I don't use this on any ordinary, everyday basis. We, my wife and I don't use this when we just serve dinner to ourselves. We only use it when the guests come over, when family comes over, when mom comes over, and we make the special pot roast or the casserole dish, and we scoop the food with this serving spoon. It was for the honorable uses for special occasions. It's like your fine china that you only pull out when you have those special guests and that, that dinner party that you throw at your house. It's that sharp suit or tie that you put on when you go to that work function. It's that exquisite dress that you wear when you go to weddings and special parties. Those kinds of things that you don't normally use on an everyday basis because they're reserved for special, honorable types of occasions and uses and purposes. Paul says that there's tools made of silver and gold that are designed for such functions for such honorable and special, respectable kinds of occasions. Now, there were also tools that were used for dishonorable purposes, and the word for dishonorable in the Greek literally can be translated as disrespectable, lowly esteemed, ignoble, not distinguished, and not highly regarded. Well, what sort of tool could that be that serves such a kind of a function? Well, in my little bag here, I also have something like this. This is a pooper scooper made of plastic. And with a pooper scooper, you may walk your dog or your, your cat poop somewhere, and then you walk along and you scoop that poop. And then the poop rolls off into the trash can. Sometimes it doesn't roll very well. And sometimes it smears a little bit. But that's the purpose of a pooper scooper. And now when you have your family or your 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 parents-in-law or your, your special friends, your boss comes over, you throw that special party, and you make that special pot roast or meatloaf or casserole dish, you don't have this next to the casserole dish. But imagine if you did. Imagine that next to your, your fine, exquisite entree, you put this next to the dish. And then you, you're scooping the mashed potatoes with it. You're scooping the pot roast with it. You're scooping that that. that, uh, that pot pie with it, and you say, here, mom-in-law, here's some, here's some mashed potatoes, mom. have some broccoli, mom-in-law, and the mother-in-law says, uh, dear, that's a pooper scooper you're using, and you say, don't worry, I washed it. <laughs> it doesn't quite cut it, does it? No matter how many times you have washed it, even with palm olive, it doesn't matter because this is a pooper scooper not meant for special, respectable, honorable functions. This is what you use. Paul says that in a big house, you have some things that are made of silver and gold, of that kind of quality that is set for honorable purposes, and some things that are made of wood and clay, of that kind of quality that are made for dishonorable purposes. Both of them have their purposes in the house. In this big house, as the metaphor for the house of God, for the kingdom work, both have their uses, but some things are meant to be set aside for honorable uses. And what Paul desires in this passage is that we all are honorable, useful instruments. You see, what we don't realize oftentimes in our culture, in our day and age, is that when we desire to do great things, what we disconnect from that desire to do great things is the quality of the person that we are. 
what we are made of. Are we made of silver and gold? Or are we made of wood and clay? Many of us desire to do great things, but are we a great person? We want to be great in our career, our craft, and our creations, but we need to be great in our character, our conscience, and our convictions. In our pragmatic culture, we focus on the quality of the product, but disconnect it from the quality of the person. We, we want to think that the content of our craft can be separated from the content of our character, but God teaches us that what, we, what you do is birthed out of who you are. He teaches that doing great things in God's plan for God's kingdom and God's redemptive work that matters in eternity is derived from being a great woman and man of Christ. For some of us, doing great things might be starting up that new business, that online thing, that venture that you want to go into, living out that dream for that innovative coffee shop that you one day want to create. It might be going on that mission trip. It might be serving in that ministry. It might be writing that book that's always been aching on your heart. It might be starting that club or that community group in your community to make a difference in your community and your neighborhood. It could be one day being an amazing mom or dad that really leaves a deep impression upon a child and for the rest of their lives. We might be dreaming of doing great things, but oftentimes God is asking us, are you ready, truly ready for great things by taking your character seriously, by taking the condition and the state and the quality of your soul seriously? One of the great things I want to do is one day to be an amazing, amazing dad. <laughs> you know, it weighs on me all the time when I look at my son and I, I think about it all the time, the, the kind of impression I'm leaving upon him because he picks up on everything. He copies everything that I do. And sometimes I'm the type who will crack a, a, a joke that I, I shouldn't have cracked because my wife gives me a look and then my son picks up on it. And then he's saying it then. And, and if, you know, I, I feel that the privilege of adopting our son is a calling from God for me to parent him well, and that responsibility weighs upon me. I don't know if this is the same feeling for biological parents exactly, but this is something I sense from God, that he and I are not connected by our genes, but he and I are connected because we're father and son strictly because God has put him into our lives, and that's the actual form of adoption. But when I ask myself sometimes, do I believe that I am that kind of a dad? where the, the, the content of my character is something that I would desire for my son to emulate. And I come to an honest confession and I say to myself, I do not think so. I do not want him to become exactly like me, but I want to become the kind of person that I would want my son to become. You know, I wonder for ourselves and the kinds of things that we dream of becoming and doing. Are we honest and looking in ourselves and to see whether we are silver and gold or we are wood and clay? See, out of great character comes great content. Out of a great person comes a great product. Out of a great self comes great success. And that's what God is showing, is that you cannot simply focus on developing your skills and getting that education, that degree, and then honing in your trade and neglect the quality and the health of the kind of person you are, whether you are godly, righteous, loving, a Christ-like person that has, has constantly been hum humbly dealing with all the skeletons in your own closets. Are you a person who is ready for greatness? Are you built for greatness? 
If you are, if you're going to be serious about the quality of what you do, then get serious about the quality of who you are. And what does Paul tell us? What do we have to do in order to be silver and gold? Then the natural, perhaps, thinking and the reaction is thinking that I just need to pray. And yes, you do. You need to ask God, and I ask God all the time as my artist and as my creator, as my author, to write this book, to, to paint upon me and to reveal the masterpiece that only he can do in me. I do that all the time, and yet in this passage at the same time, in verse 21, Paul tells us that we need to cleanse ourselves. He says in verse 21 here that if anyone cleanses themselves, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will then be a vessel of what is honorable. The action verb is you cleanse yourself. You see, oftentimes I think in our culture, we want to believe that is God who changes me, and yes, that is true. And that somehow, though, we create this either or, that if, if I only depend upon God, then there's not as much that I really need to do. It's not my, my strength, but it is your responsibility to walk a godly path. It is your responsibility to cultivate and to harness a character of quality that's Christ-like. Paul tells us that you have to cleanse yourself, and by telling us that, it does no way diminish the fact of Christ's effective work and his death upon the cross to give you salvation, which you cannot do or lift a finger to change. It does not nullify any of that for your eternal salvation or your righteous position before God. It does not in any way diminish the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying you. What God does, God does. What Jesus does, Jesus does. And what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit does as an all-encompassing authoritative power over you. But within that, you are also supposed to take action. It's in the same way when my son comes crying to me, saying he can't find his action figure, which happens almost on a daily basis. I can't find Superman. He was just playing with it two minutes ago. And it's because he played with one thing, then another thing, then another thing. And then two minutes later, he can't remember the first thing, where it was, and he's freaking out. He's, he's, where is Superman? You know, and he says, help me, help me. And he's literally crying because he, he's, he's just thinking that Superman has now somehow flown back to Krypton and is not coming back to Earth into his living room. And I say to him, well, let's go look for it. And he says to me, Daddy, you find it. You find it because he is completely being dependent upon me. He wants me to solve his problem. I say, come on, let's go. Let's go find it. And we'll, we'll walk around and within like 30 seconds, I'll tell him, I see it. And I'm looking in that direction where the Superman is. I see it. <laughs> and, and then he says, where, where? And, he, and I said, look where daddy's looking. And then he, he finally tr- tracks with my, my line of sight. And, and he goes over to that spot. And, and he, he's looking around. And I go, it's there. And then he finds it. And he picks it up. And he's happy again. And the world is all fine again. You know, He could not have done it without me. But I chose not to do it entirely for him. I directed him. I guided him. And I needed him to make his choice so that... There's a change that happens within him as he learns to take action. I think that is God's grace to us. God's grace to us in saying, I'm not just going to just magically make everything happen for you. And there's sometimes God does. Sometimes I think when we're wrestling with something internally that we just are feel so powerless to deal with, God sometimes I think provides a miracle to remove that from you, remove that sense of guilt, remove that sense of remorse. He removes those things from you that only the Holy Spirit can do. And there's a lot of times in varying degrees where, where God says, you know what, I need you to lift the finger. I'm going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to give you the conviction to do it. I'm going to give you the wisdom to do it. I'm going to walk alongside you to do it. And, you, and underneath all, you have the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ that cleanses you every single day. But you need to take some steps. 
And that's a loving father. That is a gracious God who empowers actual change in the person. He says to cleanse yourself. And, and then he goes on and more specifically lays out what does it mean to cleanse yourself? Well, he gives you this in verse 22. He tells you, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee and pursue. Those are the actions by which you will carry out to cleanse yourself. The word to flee means to run away from something, in original Greek, like your life depended upon it, as if something was going to harm you and you're running away from it. And for those of us who have watched Stranger Things, we know something about running away (laughs) from that monster that doesn't belong in our world. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, (laughs) go on to your Netflix, (laughs) because this sermon illustration will make no sense to you. I've run away from a whole lot of things before. I've been chased by dogs. I've been chased by a goose. I've been chased by a bear. I've been chased by a Honda Prelude full of Asians. And you know, if anyone here know what I'm talking about, that's trouble, because you don't know how many Asians are in that Prelude. You think there's three or four, because you think there's only probably four or five seat belts. There's like 12 of them in there. <laughs> so we've been, oh, here, here. <laughs> it was me and my buddies, there's four of us. We came out of a dance party in San Francisco. This is San Francisco. Came out of a dance party, it's like 11.30 p.m. at night. We're hanging around waiting for all, all our female friends to get picked up by their drivers. And, and, you know, we don't want them to be just hanging around 1130 at night in San Francisco kind of all alone. We're kind of being the men, you know. And we're all about the same height, you know. So we're all short. We're all small. And so they, they all leave, and that was like midnight, you know. And then, so we start walking along, and, and then there's this Honda Prelude comes driving by. And uh, we're just talking. We're oh, Honda Prelude drives by. Probably about... 20 seconds later, same Honda Prelude has circled back around and is driving by, and there's a guy with his window row down looking at us, and he's, he's scoping us out. And I stopped my, my friends. I said, guys, I think we're about to get jumped. And they said, what, what? That Honda Prelude, that's the same Honda Prelude. And the guy was just watching us. And then so we, we, we backtrack, and we, we take a different route, and we, we start running, and, um, and the Honda Prelude is coming now. We, we see it coming, it, it's circled back around, it's coming, and, it, it's, and so we take another turn, and we're, we're trying to head towards the beach, because <laughs> we figure Honda Prelude cannot go in the beach. <laughs> so we're trying to head towards the beach in San Francisco. But we don't make it there until we, we get right to the street, where across the street would have been the beach, but, the, you know, but we're, okay, we just got to duck here, because we're not going to make it across the street without them, them, them seeing us. And, and so, so we, 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 we duck around here, and, and if you remember those old houses in San Francisco, the the, the driveway is like a tunnel, you know, there's like a, this big kind of tunnel and then the, the garage door is here. So we find one of those and we duck into that and there's a car parked here. So it's great coverage. So then a car's parked in the driveway. We're hiding in some guy's, you know, you know, garage awning thing. And so we're hiding in there and we see the Honda Prelude drive by and it goes away and we're just, just hang tight, just hang tight, just sit here. And then I said to the guys, I said, guys, I think we're safe now. No, 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 no. My best friend, Eddie's saying, just stay put, stay put. Wait, to, wait a long time. Make sure they're gone. No, I think they're gone. I think they're gone. No, just stay put, Brian. No, look, let me check. Let me check. I'll go and check, okay? I get out, walk out onto the sidewalk. I see two headlights coming. Guys, I think they found us. <laughs> Eddie's coming out with my two friends. He's like saying all kinds of words I cannot say here in church, you know, calling me names. And so we start running. Now, now we're, we're starting to run to the beach again. And finally, we get up, up the hill on the beach and we're running for our lives. And, and the hunter pretty stops and, and they're calling out, screaming. And, that, and I'm, I'm one of the, you know, me and the other two guys are some of the fastest. Eddie's kind of be behind there. And, and I'm like, why is Eddie so slow? So we're, we're just running. And then they're calling out and say, hey, stop running. And then Eddie stops. And I was like, Eddie, what are you doing? Keep running. 
And they just want to talk to them. They thought we were part of a gang that we weren't part of. I guess we, I don't know, we looked out. We're, we're Asians. You know, it was an Asian gang. We, we're all look-alike, right? <laughs> so we weren't that gang that they thought we were, that we were a part of. And, and then after that, you know, it was a misunderstanding. They stopped chasing us. And we went to 7-Eleven and played Street Fighter 2. Run like your life depends upon it. <laughs> Run like your life depends upon it. And how many of us are serious about running from youthful passions? You see here, when I used to read this passage, when I read youthful passions, I read temptations. To avoid temptations. Run from temptations is, is how I read this passage. But you know, there's something very different about this. And it's the same way in which Peter, Paul, James, and John use this phrase, youthful passions. They, they mean it all in the same way. So there's a collective understanding of what this means. And that it means forbidden desires for forbidden lusts. And this is very different from temptations. You see, when you encounter temptations, you see something on television, you know you shouldn't be watching, you can turn it off. When you walk along the street, you're driving along the street, you see something you shouldn't be looking at, you can look away. When you hear something you, on the radio you shouldn't be listening to, you can shut it off. You see, temptations larger are external to you, including the devil. The devil in an attempt uh, to tempt you is external to you. Youthful passions have to deal with desires that are inside you. They're your desires. They're what you want. They're a part of you, your hungers, your urges, your appetites. And sometimes these are positively types of desires like you really wanted, but they're also negatively types of desires where really you, you, you want this out of habit. You want this in such a way because how, how many of you have ever churned negative thoughts in yourself before and you know intellectually you should stop churning those negative thoughts and yet there's kind of a desire to keep those thoughts going. There's a desire to, to keep rehearsing those attitudes. You see, that not all desires are actually good for you. Paul, Peter, John, and James all agree and, and are talking about referring to youthful passions as a desire that is contrary to God's truths and to God's character that are actually destructive to you. How many of you have ever wanted something, wanted it so badly, but you know that the more that you continue to rehearse that desire, the more it corrupts you, the more it creates decay, the more that it, it, it causes you to look at people in a way that you shouldn't be looking at them. Those kinds of desires. The way that you look at your world or interpret the situations of your life in ways that you shouldn't be. Those kinds of desires. The, the way that you look at yourself in such a way that is actually unhealthy and not good for you. Those kinds of desires. You see, how do we fight against our own desires? Well, you do so when you perceive that your desires are not the highest end. See, in our culture, that is kind of the principle of our millennial postmodern culture. If I want it, I gotta have it, you know? And imagine the negative. If you can't have what you want, what does our culture say? You're infringing on my freedom. It's my freedom. There's that social value that is, that is defined by getting what we want and not being restrained from what we want, not thinking that what we want may be actually destructive to our souls. But we don't have to give our desires that ultimate authority, but rather God's desires, God's character, and God's word and his truths have ultimate authority over us. So whenever you find yourself saying, I just can't help myself, but you can if you don't allow that desire to have that ultimate authority over you. Some things you want are contrary to the character of God. Some things you want lead you to a more dishonorable self, and some lead you to more an honorable self or honorable purposes. What desires do you need to run from? What desires are, are churning within you? 
that lay in the recesses of your mind, that sit at the very bottom uh, of your, the core of your being that you need to run away from as if your life depended upon it. What lusts, what cravings, what imaginations, what fantasies, what ungodly attitudes do you continue to cultivate? Are there some desires that are birthed out of envy? You want it because somebody else has it. You want it because you saw from media and marketing commercials that this is what it means to have a great life and to be successful, and you don't have that, so now out of envy, you want that but that's not even what you truly want. There's a great uh, Christian philosopher who's now passed away. He's a, a rare French Christian philosopher named René Girard, who writes in this theories and this philosophies that our, our day and age and our culture is largely defined by desires that are based out of envy. And it stems back to the old biblical teachings of coveting. We covet what we do not have because we covet what others have. But running away is not enough. You see, you're not defined entirely by what you run away from, what you avoid, but what you embrace. So Paul says pursue. And the same word there is actually a synonym to flee. To pursue is not the, not the exact same word, but it's a synonym to the word flee, meaning that you run to grasp onto something as if your life depended upon it. So in the same urgency that you run away from something, use that same urgency to run towards something because you're defined more by what you embrace and what you are becoming. So to pursue, Paul talks about, is like the game of tag. When someone else is it, you run away as if from that person as if your life depended upon it. And when you're it, you chase that kid as if your life depended upon it because you don't want to be it anymore. It's a both and. Flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. What Paul tells us to pursue after is righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The righteousness is about morality, Purity, holiness, godliness, and justice. Pursue after righteousness. You know, I, I find, I was talking to a, a script writer who has had a lot of his scripts produced for, um, for like Disney and Pixar, and he's a professor at UCLA. And I was talking with him over the phone, and he says, nowadays it's become far more challenging for him to get his scripts produced because of the culture that we're in that there's, the content would not be acceptable uh, for, for what he would put into his script. He couldn't do that as a Christian. Um, in our culture, I find that perhaps it becomes more and more of a challenge in order to pursue morality and purity. And then I think about Paul's days, and you read in Paul's days, I mean, they had, there was all kinds of stuff going on back then. They just didn't have social media to like broadcast it. But, you know, it was, it was pretty raunchy, you know, back then. And so I'm thinking, you know what, we're in good company still. It's not like we live in such a time that is totally unaware to the Bible, you know? And so God's word still applies in, in, in encouraging us and in, in furthering us to pursue righteousness. And then he says to pursue faith. Faith is about belief and trust. Faith is about belief and trust. You know, when you think back to that story about Moses who struck the rock twice, you guys know that story? And then God says, condemns him and says, you will not enter the promised land because you do not uphold me as holy, you know. But prior to God condemning him saying that, he said to Moses, you do not believe me enough, meaning you do not trust me enough. That aspect of faith is a preventative from many other vices. You know, if you're prone to anger, do you trust God enough? If you're, if you're prone towards bitterness, do you trust God enough? If you're prone towards envy, do you trust God enough? That faith is foundational. And he tells us to pursue love. Love is compassion, mercy, goodness, sacrificial love, agape, unconditional love. 
pursue this love? Do you pursue love above all things? And then the fourth is peace. Peace about, is about reconciliation, unity, wholeness, because an understanding of shalom is this idea of pursuing wholeness. Do you pursue peace? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee and pursue. So what kind of a person you are is about what you run away from and what you run after. When you don't run away from the things we should, they become skeletons in our closets and demons upon our backs. When you don't run after the things you should, you're missing the mark, and you always feel like you're coming short of the finish line. But verse 22 also enlightens us about something else. See, you're not supposed to flee and pursue by yourself. Any runners in here? Anybody who likes to run marathons? Wow, I'm in good company because I hate running. But I used to be part of the cross-country team. Now, why in the world would a guy who hates running be part of the cross-country team? Because I was a good Asian. I need something on my college application. But I was terrible at cross-country. And the best times of running was when my whole team was running with me, but then I start to slow down. And then I don't see any people anymore. And it's just me out there in the middle of nowhere with these hills and grasses and trees. And then I start losing some of the motivation. And I start walking. You know? And I'm like, okay, I got to finish. <laughs> I got to run. I still have three more miles to go. Then I walk. You know? It's much more empowering when you're running together. In verse 22, Paul says to flee and pursue along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Along with those who call on the Lord. Run together. Be in your community groups. Connect with your mentors. Get together with your accountability partners. Hang with your Christian brothers and sisters and run together. Confess to one another. Share with each other. And it's not just that you, you, you just need help, like you're getting help from somebody, but it's that you know that someone else might be wrestling with something similar and you are spurring each other on because you're running side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Christian faith is not entirely private. It is also largely communal. But finally speaking, there's something else about this passage that's pretty neat, which is in the beginning of this chapter in verses 3 through 6, Paul establishes an imagery, the imagery of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And the message behind all three of these imageries are the same, which is there has to be hard work that earns the prize. The soldier doesn't earn a prize unless he presses on and fights on. The athlete doesn't get the gold medal unless he presses on and finishes at the finish line. The farmer doesn't reap the harvest unless he works hard. You see, there's something I love to do, and I love the farmer imagery, because you might not look at me and see, oh, Farmer Brian, you know? But I love gardening. I really enjoy gardening. I enjoy plants. And I was re-gardening and growing new grass. And this is my new grass that I was growing that, no, that doesn't quite look like this so much anymore because of the 90-some degree weather lately. But anyway, but back then, you know, this, over in July, <laughs> my grass looked like this. You know, I'm growing new grass in my backyard, and I'm very proud of them. And then I get to do cool things like this here where I'm scattering seed. And at one point, I have like two handfuls of seed, and I go whoosh, you know, and the seed's like scattering all over the place. But sometimes... Before you can scatter seed and grow that grass that you're so proud of, our ground looks like this. That's all dried, hardened, and parched. And sometimes the condition of our souls looks like this ground, where we are 
hardened from stubbornness, from perhaps a long length of time without change, without genuine, sincere change. And what is necessary is for us to break up that ground, the hard, diligent labor of breaking up that ground. That's me out there with a shovel. That is, I'm just going away at this thing, and it's hot out there. It's like high 80s, 90s. Actually, this day, I think it was mid-90s. <laughs> and then you see how low my fence is right there, right? And so my neighbor... You know, she comes over, and I can only see this part of her. You know, she pokes over the fence, and this is the only, the only part that I've ever seen of her face. I don't know what her entire face looked like. Okay, in the year that I've lived there, this is the... So if I ran into her in the supermarket, and I saw her, she'd have to go like this. I'm like, oh, hey, neighbor. Okay, so, and the first thing I thought of when I saw this was, oh, Wilson from Home Improvement is real, you know. So I see this, and then she pokes over, and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, um, I'm reseeding, you know, the grass in my yard. And she says to me, she goes, not in this weather. And I kind of said to her, I go, you do it when you got to do it, you know. You can wait for better weather. You can wait for the perfect occasion to finally cultivate your soul so that it's ready for change, or you can do it now. If you keep waiting, likely it will never happen. Seek to be silver and gold today. Don't wait for when, when, I, get, when I get more time, when, when, when things get better with my relationship with my girlfriend, when, when I get to focus this a little bit more because I'm busy at my job, when I'm done with the overtime at work, when I'm done with school, you know, there's always going to be something in life. And it's easy to say, I'm just going to wait for a better season to pursue godliness. <laughs> that does not work. You pursue godliness in every season. If it's raining, it's hot, it's cold, it's great weather, godliness is timeless. It surpasses beyond the seasons of life because it needs to be forged and tested through the seasons of life. There is no good time for the hard work. The best time for the hard work is in any time. You do it when you got to do it. So I can't tell you how often I've, I've felt like God's been wanting to do something great through me. And then I come to the end of that processing and realizing that God's been waiting on me to become the kind of person he's been calling me to be. Sometimes God tells us to wait. Sometimes he says the timing is not yet now for you to do great things. And sometimes God is saying, I'm waiting on you. How often have you desired to do great things more often than we might think his timing is now and he's ready for us to do great things that he desires great things from our lives more than we desire it he desires to see wonderful glorious things manifest from our lives more than we do because he saved us by the blood of christ our life belongs to him and he loves to see this life become beautiful and to do beautiful things and yet sometimes what we don't realize is how much he is waiting upon us and asking us are you ready are you ready to deal with those things in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, in your imaginations, in your fantasies, those, those vices that are in us that, that, that are corrupting us to, so that it prevents us from being truly silver and gold? Are, are we ready to confess? Are we ready to be humble? Are we ready for sincere change so that we might be the instruments of silver and gold set apart for honorable purposes? And God says, I'm ready. I'm ready to work with you. I've given you Jesus. Jesus' blood will constantly be a power in your life. The Holy Spirit is constantly working in you to sanctify you. God says, I need you to get on board with me. Are we serious about doing great things that God calls us to by becoming the great person God desires us to be? Flee and pursue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord God, for your dreams for our lives. 
For perhaps you have greater dreams for us than we could possibly imagine. And we thank you, Father God, that you have given us every means to grow and to be transformed and to be redeemed from our brokenness and to be able to be victorious from the vices of our lives, from the temptations of Satan, from ourselves, Lord, from the things that are festering inside of us that you desire to renew, to to cleanse from us. And God, give us the strength, the resolve, give us the commitment and sincerity to say, God, we're going to walk with you. We're not going to lag behind. We're not going to fight you on this, but we're going to make decisive steps to walk with you and to say, God, we're going to fight this. We're going to flee from the things we need to flee from. We're going to pursue after the things we need to pursue in order to become silver and gold set apart for honorable, glorious purposes, great things that you have dreamt for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.